Hey, Bill, could you catch that? Never mind. <laughs> I could get it. Bill got sidetracked. bought those copies of Essential Church to hand out. Mm -hmm. That Saturday morning they were handing out free copies of it. <laughs> <laughs> All right, what's on y'all's minds for immediate prayer tonight? Doing great. I hear you. Everybody's got a lot of life going on, I'm sure. Yes, everybody does. Life happens all the time. I hear you. If you have children and grandchildren, life just continues to happen. If nobody has anything hard pressing, somebody open us up and then we'll I'll finish it out and then we'll dive in. said father thank you for the time together father we thank you for the way that you've worked in and through all of our many requests lord father i just think in our life the way you've worked through in my truck situation father may you be praised father for the medical touches that you have given lord be exalted father where you are mending families lord may you be praised father where you're giving grace just to make it through the day god we lift a hallelujah to you for it father we've come to you word now Father, I ask that you teach a better lesson than I'm prepared to give. Father, that you open our hearts to who you are. Father, that you open our eyes to see you as best we can as you are. Lord Jesus, we've come to praise you and exalt you. And Father, to lift up the blood of Calvary before you within the temple, God. Father, we thank you for your word. Father, we thank you for the revelation given to our Lord entrusted to the angel and dispensed to John that he could dole it out to us, God. Father, we thank you. Father, thank you that you desire to communicate with your people, that you desire to have a relationship, God. Father, that you seek to know us and be known by us. Thank you for that honor. Father, be in our conversations now. Father, may they be joyful. Father, may they be uplifting. Father, may they glorify you and exalt you. Father, we do love you and we praise you and we ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. 
All right, last week I was at, well, during this past week, I was asked a question. How do we know that John's pointing back to a lot of this stuff? And G.K. Bill, one of the guys I'm reading, uh, he says that John's Greek is absolutely impeccable. I was talking with Michael Stewart earlier this week, and he said one of his professors said it like this, that you've got Paul's Greek, which is great, but then you've got John's Greek, which is like Greek on steroids. So we often think of John, how? He's just a fisherman, right? He's just one of these little rednecks from up in the Galilee, doesn't know too much. What happens the night that Jesus is betrayed and goes into the trial? Who gets into the trial? John and who? Peter. How did Peter get in? John knew the folks. When John starts talking about people, he doesn't just say the servant of the high priest. He says, that's Malchus. And he calls individuals by name. He calls Annas by name. He knows Caiaphas' relationship to Annas. He calls Caiaphas out by name. He calls a lot of people out by name that the other gospels don't mention. And a lot of guys, can you just imagine Jesus with these, with these 12 teenage boys? Jesus says, uh, John's not a teenage boy. Most scholars believe that John's a year or two older than Jesus is, that most of the disciples are around Jesus' age. They're not little boys. Now, you got Andrew, who may very well have been a teenage boy. You've got Thaddeus, and just by the sheer mention of his name, it means breast child. Uh, in our modern vernacular, we would call him a mama's boy. So, you've, I mean, no doubt you've got a couple of guys that are on the young end of the spectrum that are very well possibly 13, 14, 15. But then you got guys like John, who when all this began, just 32, 33 maybe, just a little bit older than what Christ is when all this gets started. But John is so intelligent, and he writes intelligently. He knows Greek. His Greek is absolutely impeccable. The book of John, 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, are absolutely impeccable. When we encounter just Greek from John in Revelation, which is rare, it's in its absolute purest form. It is textbook example. This is exactly how it should be. Uh, Hebrew, or Aramaic street language, is what we would call high inference and low syntax. They got some words with a lot of meanings, kind of like English. We say something's hot. Is it temperature hot? Is it stolen? Is he, is he or she beautiful? Is it spicy? Well, I mean, we, we've got seven or eight definitions for what hot means. Whereas in the Greek, you say something's temperature hot. You're going to have something along the lines of thermos. Uh, if you say something's beautiful, there's eight different words to describe something beautiful to say it's hot that way. Greek is what we call high syntax low inference. So we've got few meanings and a ton of words. It's a very specific language. It's, it's much akin to being a numerical language. In fact, it is a numerical language, and we encounter that in the Bible. How? Alpha, Omega. We, we come with Alpha, Omega. I'm thinking something much bigger.
Let us count the number of the man, the number of the beast, for it is the number of a man. It is six, six, six. Now this has alphabetical correlation, and it can be used to name a lot of different people. You can take the <laughs> the Greek alphabet, and you can get Nero out of this. And to say that Nero is the Antichrist, there's only a problem with that. Why would God give us a book about a coming Antichrist who has already come and died at this point? So Greek is very specific. It's, it's, the alphabet is on par with numerics. It's that specific. It's like this word has this meaning, maybe one more. When you get into these Greek words that have three meanings, that they are a rare creature indeed. One for the most part, occasionally two, extremely rare, three. And so John has in his writing what are called design flaws. He'll write in Greek a certain way, but then he'll write in the Greek the way a Jew would write it. And so instead of coming to what we would see as theos for God, we're going to come to actually God's name. And so what that does is that points us back to something else. And a lot of these references that we've already encountered, they point us back to Old Testament scriptures. We have to go back and see where is this worded this way. Now in the English, it doesn't always translate. But if you're a Greek scholar and you're reading in Greek, hey, this is not the way this word should be formed. Where would I see this word formed this way? And so you get out your lexicon and you get out your concordance and you start saying, okay, well, this is going to send me back. We've got a few scriptures here that we're going to see that are full of this. And one specifically where, John, where the Holy Spirit through John takes a little bit of liberty, but he implies the exact same meaning. And so that's how we can tell when John is dealing with what's at hand or he's trying to convey a different idea altogether or a more full sense in the Hebrew versus what we encounter in the Greek. So I wanted to take care of that. Unfortunately, the person that asked isn't here tonight. Maybe they'll catch it on the recording. Uh, I gave them a quick explanation, but that's the big explanation. Okay. So we ended in verse 6. I'll restart in 4 just to get us rolling into 7 and 8 tonight. John, to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come, and from the seven spirits who are before his throne and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead and the ruler of the kings of the earth, to him who loves us and releases us from our sins by his blood, and he has made us to be a kingdom, priest to his God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, and all the tribes of the earth will mourn over him, so it is to be. Amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. All right, verse 7. We start out somewhere else completely. Where does John take us? He takes us back to Daniel chapter 7. What does he say about Christ? Coming with the He's coming with the clouds. Somebody turn over to Daniel chapter 7 and read 9 through 14 for us.
Let's do 9 and 10, and then we'll go, we'll talk about it a minute, and then we'll get into 13 and 14. 9, nine and 10 first. As I looked, thrones were placed, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing was white as snow, and the hair of his head like pure wool. His throne was fiery flames, its wheels were burning fire. A stream of fire issued and came out from him. A thousand thousands served him, and ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. The court sat in judgment, and the books were open. All right. Daniel's painting a picture. He's telling us what he's seen. What are we seeing going on here? God's on his throne. What, let, let's start with that first passage. I kept looking in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, one like the Son of Man was coming, and he came up to the Ancient of Days. Oh, no, excuse me. That's, I'm jumping ahead. I kept looking until thrones were set up. Some of yours may say cast down. Some of yours, like Karen's, read just thrones were placed. King David. King James says put in place. I thought it said until thrones were cast down. I watched till thrones were put in place. Ah, cool. That's Isaiah. That's Daniel. Yeah. Right. All right. So what we're looking at, some translations say cast down. And I've heard a lot of IFB guys talk about until all these kings are put down and all these kingdoms are put down. That's not what this is talking about. We think of a throne as being like this big, monstrous, golden chair. We think of like Queen Elizabeth's throne when we think of a throne or one of these big chairs that you see at, at some weddings. Like I get ads all the time. Hey, buy your wedding thrones. And they've got these big, monstrous, gaudy, ugly, gold and silver things. And <laughs> I want one. <laughs> but, <laughs> but that's what we think of. We're not thinking... Western Asian or what we would call Middle Eastern here, you've got shawls and you've got these moms and stuff. They don't sit in chairs like that. Jesus doesn't sit in a chair to eat. What do they do? They sit on the floor. They recline on the floor. So a throne's going to be like this massive stack of pillows. There's going to be a fine rug for the king or the shah or the prince or whoever, and there's going to be this massive stack of pillows around. And so what you, you don't put pillows up you cast them down. So when we see cast down, this is what it's talking about. Or as they're placed, or as the modern language says, set up. We're, we're assembling these thrones. And so we've got the Ancient of Days. There's, thrones are placed. His vesture was white like snow. His hair, the hair of his head was pure like wool. The throne, his throne was ablaze with flames. Its wheels were a burning fire. A river of fire was flowing. And coming out from before him, thousands upon thousands were attending him, and myriads upon myriads were standing before him. The court sat, and the books were open. All right, who are we talking about here? Well, the judge of all the earth. God, we're talking about God here. Jesus, uh, Daniel doesn't have a concept of Jesus just yet, so we're talking about God the Almighty. Hair, white like wool, or pure as wool, garments clothed with white. And there's fire underneath his throne, and there's a river of fire yeah, flowing through. probably iron chairs. <laughs> yeah, quite possibly. <laughs> we don't want the pillows getting lit on fire. 
That, that is a Kirkland's faux pas there. <laughs> Knock that sucker out. All right. This language takes us to another book. Who does it take us to? Hmm? You mean besides Revelation? Beside Revelation. It's, an, it's another Old Testament guy. Zechariah, almost not quite. It's going to be Ezekiel. He sees this massive throne, the fire, and you've got the cherubim, the wheels within the wheels. It, it's very what we would call fantastic language. It's very colorful. It's very alliterative. It, it's, it's metaphorical. It's showing us all these great things. It's just it's meant to give you this picture and this feeling of awe when you see God Almighty. And so John's pulling on these guys. He's pulling this passage from Daniel because he's talking about coming in the clouds. Uh, verses 11 and 12, Then I kept looking because of the sound of the boastful words which the horn was speaking. I kept looking until the beast was slain and the body was destroyed and given to the burning fire. As for the rest of the beasts, their dominion was taken away, but an extension of life was granted to them for an appointed period of time. All right, now we've got a language change here that we talked about in Daniel, but that's okay. All right, 13 and 14 now. Somebody? All right. You remember, there, there's one phrase, he's talking about giving glory and power and dominion and might so that the kings of the earth might serve him. Remember we talked about kings of kings. Is it a good term or is it considered to be a negative term in how it's, how it's acquired? It, it, it's bad for the, for the kings. Why? Because they have been conquered. And so we have here what's, what's happening in this vision. You've got someone coming in the clouds. Who does he approach? God. Approaches God Almighty. So we've got Christ or somebody that Daniel doesn't know about yet fully. Son of man. Huh? Son of man. Son of man coming in the clouds. And he approaches the Almighty. And what goes, what goes down? He's given dominion. He's given power. He's given glory. He's given might. Did we not see all these things last week? Just in our text with John, to him who has the glory and the might, who will be the king of kings, or a king of kings, or a king over kings. So we see John pulling on all these old guys, and he's setting us up. He's wanting us to really dig into his vision. He's wanting us to see what he sees. He's wanting us to think about this the way he thinks about it. He wants us to, when we close our eyes, to see these thrones that have been set up, to see a purging river of fire, to see lights that are around the throne, to, to see these bright garments clothed in glory, clothed in might, clothed in righteousness, clothed in purity, clothed in holiness, just the light that exudes from this. John wants us to just sit there the way he is, and he just wants us to soak it up. I want you to understand what I'm seeing, people. Dear churches in Asia, I'm sitting here on this island, 
And let me tell you what I have seen, what has been given to me. I want you to stand in awe as you read this, as I'm sitting in here in awe, seeing it. So he's given all this. Now, in the same verse, verse 7, John goes on to say, And every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, and all the tribes of the earth will mourn over him. So it is to be. Amen. He takes us to another passage. Where are we going now? Zechariah chapter 12. Somebody go to 12. Start reading in verse 1 when you get there. I want us to read the whole chapter when we get to 10 through 14. We'll really isolate it out. But I want, to, I want it in context. I don't want it to be said where well, John's taking stuff out of context. Uh, in my Bible, it's entitled Jerusalem to be attacked. And we know that in the final days, Jerusalem is to be attacked. So we're going to, we've got a short-term fulfillment, and we're going to latch on to the long-term fulfillment. So if somebody would start in verse 1. The burden of the word of the Lord concerning Israel. Thus declares the Lord, who stretched out the heavens and founded the earth and formed the spirit of man within him. Behold, I am about to make Jerusalem a cup of staggering to all the surrounding peoples. The siege of Jerusalem will also be against Judah. On that day, I will make Jerusalem a heavy stone for all the peoples. All who lift it will surely hurt themselves, and all the nations of the earth will gather against it. On that day, declares the Lord, I will strike every horse with panic and its rider with madness. But for the sake, for the sake of the house of Judah, I will keep my eyes open when I strike every horse of the peoples with blindness. Then the clans of Judah shall say to themselves, the inhabitants of Jerusalem have strength through the Lord of hosts, their God. On that day, I will make the clans of Judah like a blazing pot in the midst of wood, like a flaming torch among sheaves, and they shall devour to the right and to the left all the surrounding peoples, while Jerusalem shall again be inhabited in its place in Jerusalem. And the Lord will give salvation to the tents of Judah, Judah first, and that the, excuse me, that the glory of the house of David and the glory of the inhabitants of Jerusalem may not surpass that of Judah. On that day, the Lord will protect the inhabitants of Jerusalem, so that the feeblest among them on that day shall be like David, and the house of David shall be like God, like the angel of the Lord going before them. And on that day, I will seek to destroy all the nations that come against Jerusalem. All right, let's hold right there for a minute. All right, so what's Zechariah saying in this passage? What's he describing? A siege on Jerusalem, right? The city specifically, not just the roundabout area, but specifically Jerusalem. He says it will also spill over to Judah, which is the main kingdom when Zechariah is writing this. The kingdom of Israel has been in captivity, has not really come out of captivity, but you've got Judah and Benjamin in the south and some of the other 12 tribes. I don't, I don't want to be coming across as the other 10 tribes weren't a part of. Some of the people before Assyria came in migrated to the south. They inhabited Judah. Some of them that once they were carried into Assyria and then carried into Babylon came back with the rest of the refugees back into Judah, back into the land of the actual political Israel 
not just the northern kingdom. The northern kingdom, we know it gets set up as Syria, and it's basically its own entire nation, but then you've got the kingdom of Israel, which is more or less Judah and Benjamin in the south, with Jerusalem as the capital, and Zechariah is talking about a siege over them. He's talking about armies coming against them. What armies? Babylonians have already come in at this point. We're, we're in about to go into intertestamental periods. We're after Ezra and Nehemiah at this point. So, it, the Romans, but, but what happens with Rome? They siege Jerusalem. They siege Judah. But is there this great help that comes? What happens to Jerusalem in 70 AD? It's destroyed. It's destroyed. Now, does the passage that God, what, what God's saying in verses 1 through 9, does that sound like Jerusalem is destroyed? No, it sounds like God's sitting there fighting that battle for him. He says, I'm going to strike the enemy's horses with what? Blindness. Blindness, fear. Um, my translation says bewilderment. <coughs> What's panic? What's he going to strike the riders with? Madness. Madness. Um, Romans come in, they kind of take over. But there's something else in this passage that we need to see that is a short-term fulfillment for the long term. Now, granted, it doesn't happen for about 450 years. But what happens? What, what about David in Jerusalem in that time? Let's look at like verses 6 or 7 and 8. Or eight specifically. In that day, the Lord will defend the inhabitants of Jerusalem. And the one who is feeble among them in that day will be like David. And the house of David will be like God. Let the angel of the Lord before them. And in that day, I will set about to destroy all the nations that come against Jerusalem. Excuse me, that's not what I was looking for. The Lord also will save the tents of Judah first. So that the glory of the house of David and the glory of the inhabitants of Jerusalem will not be magnified above Judah. And in that day, God will defend. We've got a glory of David. Who's the glory of David? Jesus. Jesus. So where does the glory of David eventually come to reside? Where does he, where does he show his true ministry? Where is, he, where is the fulfillment of his ministry consummated? It's in Jerusalem, right? The glory of David is there. Jesus is executed. That is, that is the glory of his ministry. Without the death, there is no what? There is no salvation. There is no salvation from sin without the blood being applied. But now victory is obtained where? In the resurrection. Death, hell, and the grave then become subject because they have, met, they have bit off more than they can chew. They got more on their plate than they can say grace over. They've, what was that? They've been conquered. All of a sudden, somebody adds a little more length to his train, does he not? He adds the two biggest pieces, three biggest pieces, death, hell, and the grave to his train at that point. So we've got salvation being procured by the death, but then we've got victory and resurrection procured in Christ's resurrection. We've got the inheritance that can then be passed on and shared at that point. We've been saved by his death through that atoning blood. But because of that resurrection, in order that we may be like him, he's the firstborn among many what? Brethren. 
and we're given inheritance in that resurrection. That is where we obtain that godly family adoption. That is where we become the children of God because we will be like him. We can be saved as servants. We can be saved as cousins. We can be saved as distant relatives or friends of the family. But to receive the inheritance, who you got to be? You got to be the child in this case. And so we're given that right through resurrection and through Jesus' exaltation in his glory. And so what we see is we see God saying that I'm going to put glory in Jerusalem. I'm going to put the glory of David in Jerusalem. And just to make sure that nobody else is exalted before the Great Commission, go ye therefore into all the world, baptizing in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Ghost, making disciples as you go. You will be my witnesses where? In Jerusalem. In Jerusalem. In then Judea. Judea. Then Samaria, then to the ends of the world. Jesus said to the, to the Syrophoenician woman, it, it's not fit to take the meat from who? From the, from the children and give it to who? Dogs. So who's Jesus first sent to? The Jews. The Jews. Specifically, he sent to the house of Judah. He sent to his own house. And so God, what we see God doing here is we see him putting the glory of David in the house of Judah. And he's protecting. All right, let's pick up with verse 10. Carry on. And I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and pleas for mercy, so that when they look on me, on him whom they have pierced, they shall mourn for him as one mourns for an only child, and weep bitterly over him as one weeps over a firstborn. On that day, the morning in Jerusalem will be as great as the morning for Adon Ramon in the plain of Megiddo. The land shall mourn each family by itself, the family of the house of David by itself, and their wives by themselves, the family of the house of Nathan by itself, and their wives by themselves, the family of the house of Levi by itself, and their wives by themselves family of the Shemites by, them, by itself and their wives by themselves and all the families that are left each by itself and their wives by themselves. That's a lot of by themselves. That's a lot of loneliness. That's a lot of weeping. That's a lot of crying. And we start at the top and we work our way down. The great are going to mourn. They're going to be by themselves when they mourn in that time. There's not going to be professional mourners, there's not going to be flute players, there's not going to be other musicians to play a dirge. Everybody's going to be in mourning. We don't have to hire people to pretend to be sad. Everybody's going to be sad. It's going to start with the king's house. It's going to start in the house of the priest. It's going to start in the house of the prophet of God. And it's going to work its way down. Everybody that's in Jerusalem is going to be broken. They're going to be sad. Everybody that's friends of Jerusalem they're going to be broken. They're going to be sad. Everybody that's a trade partner is going to be broken. They're going to be sad. Um, your version said on me, he whom they have pierced, or look on him whom they have pierced. Uh, my translations say that they will look, <laughs> that they will look on me, that they pierced me. This is God saying this. 
And so for John to use this, John paraphrases it just a little bit. How does John present it? Well, King James says, me whom they pierced. Yeah, I looked, up, I looked up my version of it too, just to be sure. And I've got my... Even those who pierced him? Okay. So, uh, every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, and all the tribes of the earth will mourn over him. So it is to be. Amen. So, John paraphrases it. How does he change it? He doesn't change the meaning of the text, but he, twi- he, he, he tweaks the text just a little bit. Okay. He changes the person, I think. Changes from first to third, to third person. Mm-hmm. He changes something else. And he changed also, I think it's um, from um, Israel and Judah to um, all the world. Okay. This is big, though. Because we talk about Israel and Judah, and so in that we think, okay, well, all of Israel and Judah are going to be sad when they see this individual coming in the clouds. But then John twists it, and he says, what? All tribes. Not just the 12, not just the 10 and two halves, or excuse me, the 11 and two halves, not just the ones that went astray in the wilderness and decided we won't know in part of the part of the inheritance, kind of like Dan and Ephraim do, uh, but all the tribes of the world, Americans, Canadians, Irish and the Swedes, every tribe, every nation. He's not just a savior for Israel. He's a savior for who? The world. He's a savior for everybody. He's sent to redeem whomever the Father calls. It's not just for Judah. Yes, we start in Jerusalem with witnessing. And from Jerusalem, we spread out to Judea and then to Samaria and then to the ends of the world. And that's where our promise comes in because we are that last year. We are those that are at the ends of the world. And so John's pushing through that. John's been given the commandment, start in Jerusalem and then go from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria to the ends of the world. And so now, John's dealing with the world stage. He's not dealing with little local Galilee and going down to Jerusalem and dealing with these little bitty cities within Israel, well, within Judah. What he is, is he, he being the pastor emeritus for all of these churches, being basically the head of the church on earth at the time. We're not even going to cross the road into Pope. Just being the pastor emeritus for all of these churches He's conveying that we've got people that speak this language. We've got people that speak this language. We've got people that are on this continent. We've got people that are on this continent. He is their Savior. He is the Savior for all manner of tribes and tongues. And so we've got to show that this is who this is. And so the Holy Spirit, through John, lets us know that we have inheritance, that we have calling, that we have a place in Christ because Christ is is the savior of the world, not just Jerusalem. And so we see John conveying that. And then in verse 8, 
I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is, who was, and who is to come, the Almighty. Now, we've seen this before, haven't we? We've got a reiteration. John just says it like six verses earlier. But this is a very ingenious statement. What two words does he use to describe himself? Alpha and Omega. I'm Alpha and the Omega. Beginning and the end. Beginning and the end. Now, what do these things denote to us? What, what, what meaning, what, what purpose do Alpha and Omega serve, or A and Z? What are they? They're letters. What are they part of? Alphabets. All right. Is there a word in Greek that can be spelled without the letters between Alpha and Omega? No. No. Is there a, le- a word in English that can be spelled without the letters between A and Z? No. No. So in other words, every word that the Greeks can contrive to describe God, and they are very specific in their language, where is it going to fall between Alpha and Omega? Every word that we can contrive in the English language with as many meanings as we can ascribe to words because that's what we do as Americans. We give one word 50,000 meanings. They all fall between what two letters? A and Z. Everything that we can use to describe God falls within the alphabet. Once you've read the dictionary, every other, every other book is just a rewrite at that point. But this is the very ingenious way. You've got a finite number of symbols, a finite number of phenomes, menomes, that convey a world of information. God is holy. It falls here. God is all righteousness. It falls here. God is Savior. It falls here. Any word that we could give to God, God is wrathful. It falls here. God is a God of vengeance. It falls here. God is the God of love and mercy and tender kindness. It falls here. There's nothing that we can use to describe God that does not fall between the Alpha and the Omega or the A to Z. That does not start with the beginning of our understanding and fill in between to the end of our understanding. This is a very wonderful device that John has given us or that the Holy Spirit has given us through John to describe God. And we talk about God's indescribable, but does the word indescribable fall in here? Mm -hmm. Yes, and it's a word to do what? It describes. It does the exact opposite of what it says. Kind of like kids. But to say God's indescribable, well, we just used the word and we did what? We described him. But every word that we can exalt to God in praise, where is it found? It's found between these two points. Every utterance that we can give to God when we are just broken and we are crying out in pain and in need of mercy, where does it fall? It falls between these two points. I am the Alpha and the Omega. I'm not just your beginning. I'm not just your end, but I am your everything. This is what God's given us, that He is everything in our life. 
Eli and I just got back from a boys weekend. We're talking about the birds and the bees. On a side note, he's thoroughly disgusted now, so I don't think I have to worry about him for several years. So, <laughs> but <laughs> well, I keep telling him that's going to change in a few years. He's like, no, not after this. So. But God's desiring these great relationships, and they were talking about God being preeminent. He wants to be first place. He doesn't just want first place. The Ten Commandments tell us that. He says, you will have no other gods before me. What does before mean in that instance? It doesn't mean beside. It doesn't mean in front of. It doesn't mean after. It means I don't want them in my presence. Whatever you've got that's taking God's place, God wants it gone. Whatever you've got that's detracting from the worship of God, God wants it gone. I don't want idols. Our car's a good thing. Yes, Lord, praise you. We get to and from work. <laughs> is TV acceptable? Yes. A big thing for the college and careers has been what about social media? What about your phone? What about it? What about it? Exactly. Can it, can it be a good thing? Absolutely. We've got a group me page. We're constantly praying for one another. I can't tell you what an encouragement it is for me to see people post prayer requests and then for like seven or eight people within five or ten minutes, I am praying for you. To know that that prayer is being lifted, that that is being exalted, that is a great thing. Can it be bad? Yes. Absolutely. Imagine the use of AI with people with clean hearts. Amen. Man's inventions very rarely have started out for good. The nuclear bomb was not created for good. Now, we have since harnessed nuclear power, and it's used for some good things. But God says, no, no idols before me. I don't want them in my presence. I don't want them where I can see them in your life. And if you've got a God who's omniscient, omnipresent, and omnipotent, is he going to see your idols? You betcha. You betcha. He's going to see every single one of them, and he wants them gone. But this is, to sit back and just marinate on this statement, I am the Alpha and the Omega. And everything that it encompasses, every word that I could use to describe God in my life, he's all that and more. Everything that Jamie could use to describe God in her life. He's all that and more. Everything that Curtis and Ann can use to describe God in their life. He's all that and more. He is that Alpha and Omega. He is what we need him to be. He's not always what we want him to be. And, and that, that's a reality check there. But he's always everything we need him to be. When we are, when we are broken and we are struggling, he is Father. When we are lost in sin and can't find our way, He is Savior. When we are sick and we are dying, He is Healer. When we are just crying out and we are lost, He is the way. I am Alpha and Omega. And John wants us to really grab on to this statement. That's why it's the end of this little section. 
God says, I am Alpha and Omega. After, say, after talking about being one coming in the clouds, after talking about rescuing Jerusalem, and every eye will look on him whom they have pierced, and they will mourn every tribe of the world if you're broken over your sin. I am Savior. If you're hurting and loss of hope, I am your hope. I am the rock that does not move. I am that static stone in a sea of relativism. I do not move. There is no shadow of turning. This week, think on that. Just think on what Alpha and Omega, what A and Z for you are. A to Z. All these things that God is for you. Let me check time. Ah, I got a few minutes. We can carry on. Ha <laughs> ha. Sweet. Yeah. This is where you're going to need your little colored map that Andy printed up. It's got all the tribes around the temple. This one. Uh, for those of you who are watching online, I will try to get this posted in the GroupMe because most of you are in GroupMe, and if you're not, you're connected to somebody who is, so we will get it to you some way, shape, form, or fashion. Uh, do what? There are some more in the handouts, but... All right. Yeah, that one. Because John's going to give us a vision now, and I want you to be able to place where John is. Chapter 1, verse 9. I, John, your brother and fellow partaker in the tribulation and kingdom and perseverance which are in Jesus, was on the island called Patmos because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice like the sound of a trumpet saying, Write in the book what you see and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus, to Smyrna, to Pergamum, to Thyatira, to Sardis, to Philadelphia, and to Laodicea. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking with me, and having turned, I saw seven golden lampstands, and in the middle of the lampstands I saw one like a son of man, clothed in a robe reaching to his feet and girded across his chest with a golden sash. His head and his hair were white like wool, like snow, and his eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze when it had been made to glow in a furnace, and his voice was like the sound of many waters. In his right hand he held the seven stars, and out of his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun, shining in its strength. All right. Can you place John on this map? Do you know where John is? He's in the temple, absolutely. He's in the holy place. He's in the holy place. How do we know? The seven candlesticks. The seven candlesticks. For those of you that were pre-Aaron, you may remember us talking about this a little bit on Sunday mornings. We all think of seven candlesticks as being seven individual candlesticks. That's not so. What we encounter, and especially reading in Zechariah, 
uh, along around chapters 2 or 3, I believe. And if you read in Leviticus and in Exodus, we encounter something a little different, but we still encounter the seven lampstands. And we said he's, John's where? He's in the holy place, and the person he saw is where, Alex? In the midst. John is in the holy place because he's seeing the menorah, and he's looking and he's seeing Jesus, who is in the midst of the seven golden candlesticks. He's standing right here. So how do we see Jesus now? He's got a long robe that comes to his feet. He's got a golden sash. His hair is white like wool. He's got feet that are like burnished bronze as though they have been walking through the fire. What role do we see Jesus as now? He's, he's in his priestly garments. Not just because he's in his garments, but because of where he is. Where is he? He's in the holy place. You've got the courtyard. Jews can come into the courtyard. Priests, high priest or lower <coughs> priest, they can come into the holy place. Where we see him as the high priest is when we get into the holy of holies. Only the high, only the high priest goes in there. But right now we see him in the office of priest. He's standing amongst the golden candlesticks. And John looks and he sees him. And there he is. And we're going to encounter something else with the seven golden candlesticks. What else are we going to encounter? All of you have read Revelation before. Do what? Jesus has seven stars, but the candles, the candles are, are they lit or are they out? They're all lit. Now, Who's the flame? Jesus is the light. Jesus is the light. Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit. Why? Is that a reference to Pentecost? There is a reference to Pentecost there. And if we were reading in the Greek, we would see John referencing something else that actually technically isn't in what we know as the Old Testament. We would see it in Talmud or in um, one of the Midrashes. And Jesus goes on to talk about it. What happens if the church, churches that are doing bad don't change their ways? What does he say he's going to do? Put their light out. Yeah. He's going to come and he's going to extinguish that fire. Well, every time the menorahs would get blown out in the temple they would need to write something Ichabod what does Ichabod mean? The spirit, has departed. the spirit has departed it would mean that the spirit is left so when Jesus says I'm going to come and I'm going to extinguish that flame if you don't change your ways what's he saying? we're taking the Holy Spirit from you So we see 
a very holy picture here. We see Jesus in his temple, whether it's the heavenly temple or whether it's the temple that John remembers from Jerusalem in the vision, I can't tell you. Uh, I'm inclined to believe that it's a holy, that it's a heavenly temple that he's seeing, that he's seeing Jesus in this place in the holy temple in, in heaven, and he's encountering this menorah, which is which we go on to know that it's the seven churches, but we see John looking at him and seeing him as he is in his office of priest. Not just prophet, not just king, but at the moment we're dealing with priestly duty. Now what's the object of Christ's priestly duty? What's the purpose of Christ's priestly duty? What is the nature? To offer redemption. To offer redemption? To purchase us by his blood. That's where he's a sacrifice. He's the sacrifice, but we're talking about the priest now. The priest is the one that offers the sacrifice, but what does the priest do on the... He's the mediator. He's the go-between. He's the one that takes the sacrifice to offer, atone, offer the atoning sacrifice to God. What we've got is we've got Christ going into the Holy of Holies on our behalf. But there's a unique position about Christ with the Holy of Holies. He is the sacrifice. He is the sacrifice. Sacrifices already been made. Sacrifices out here where the fire is. We're getting to the insides now. Blood has already been sprinkled. But now he doesn't have to go in blind. He doesn't have to put the blood on his ear, on his <laughs> thumbnail, or on his toenail, because he's already done that. He's probably the source of fire because he has fire coming out. He's the source of fire because he's got fire coming out. He doesn't need a sacrifice for himself. He doesn't need a sacrifice for himself. He is the sacrifice. He is holy. He is holy. Now, well, let's, let's gnaw on that bone for a minute. Jesus is holy. Y'all tell me what happens on Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. You tell me. Let's try to get it in order. What happens first thing in the morning? Nope. What does the priest get up and do? What does he kill? The what? He washes himself. He cleans himself, okay? Then what? They make a sacrifice. We don't kill a lamb. We kill something much, much, much bigger. He kills the bull. What does he do with the bull? Puts the blood in the basin. Then what does he do? He ties his white cord and his gold cord around his ankle. He's got bells on the other ankle so that the priest outside can count the steps. The cords are there to pull his body out should he die in the presence of God. What else? He's got, he's got his basin full of bull's blood. Digs thumb in, puts a little here, puts a little there. What was that, Alex? Goes in the Holy of Holies, eyes wide open, right? Hey, look at, look at the furniture. It's so nice. Ooh, I could put some couches over there. Come on. He closes his eyes. Before he goes in, he takes a censer full of what? What was that? 
Incense, specifically frankincense. frankincense. All right. It stings the eyes. He puts it in the sensor, sticks the sensor through the openings in the curtains, waves it around, gets it all nice and smoky. When you start to see the smoke beginning to billow out from under the folds of the curtains, you know it's full. And so as a precaution, well, is required, he closes his eyes. The frankincense is a precaution. Not only is it a sweet savor, but it stings the eyes and bites the nose. As over the ground he goes, takes the bowl in. What does he do next? However many steps, 21, 13, 12 and a half, it's, it's going it's to be determined by how big the guy is. Short little guy, he might take 14 or 15 steps because the room's 20 by 20 by 20. All right, if he's a tall guy, he may take four steps and he's there. But once he's there, what does he do? Sprinkles it on the west side of what? The mercy seat, the Ark of the Covenant. Okay, then what does he do? Turns around. Counts his steps till he feels curtain hit him in the face, and then he pushes his way through seven layers of curtain, comes out. Whoo! All right. Round one, I'm halfway there. Then what? Then they cast lots. They cast lots. What do they cast lots on? The two goats. Then what do they do? The lot that falls to the people the, to God what or to Azazel, what happens? Puts his hand on it, gives a general blessing over it, gives thanks to God, and imputes sin. And then what happens? Run it out into the wilderness. Okay? And later on, the goat started coming back. So what do they do? Push a rock over on it like a tick. There it goes. All right. Then what? We got another goat. The other goat's going to be killed. What happens? Takes ten and parts sin, and they're there for a while because he's praying sin. I mean, it's like for the adultery that has been committed within our camp, for those that we haven't found out about. God, we ask that you forgive on that. God, for little little Zacky who stole some manna from Aunt Matilda, whatever. He's imputing sins, imputing sins upon this goat. Then he takes his three-edged knife with a nice smooth edge, grabs the goat by the horns, from left to right, slits its throat. What does he do next? Drains the blood. Drains the blood into the basin. Then what does he do? Same thing he did with the bull's blood. Goes in. All right. Now, how often does the high priest go in? Once a year. Or twice. Twice on one day a year. All right. There's a lot involved for this high priest, isn't there? He's been kept awake for about three days to make sure that he doesn't defile himself in his sleep with dreams, nocturnal emissions, whatever. The priest is kept awake so that he's clean, he's holy, he's ready to go in. Okay. He's got so many steps he's got to take. Does he have shoes on? No. No shoes. All right. There is this whole process that has been gone through and has to be gone through year after year year after year for him to do what? For him to go in. Jesus doesn't go in. We understand from Melchizedek in Hebrews where what does Melchizedek do? Does he wait for Abraham to come to him? He goes out to meet. 
So what does Jesus do as a priest after the order of Melchizedek? Where does he, how does he pass through the curtain? He's coming out of the Holy of Holies to deal with us. Holiness comes out. It's not that he, in unholies going in through ritual. It's that holiness has come out to meet man. That holiness has come out to deal with man. Jesus doesn't go into the Holy of Holies. He comes out from. Everything that man tries to do to get in, all the ritual that man has to go through to get in, all the processes that man goes through to get in, staying awake for so long, being sober, being vigilant, working and working and working. And Jesus, by his sheer nature, being the son of the almighty God, being God himself, steps out from the mercy seat to sinful man. And so we see, we see Jesus having stepped out. This is what we see with John right now. Jesus has stepped out. It's not that he's walked in from the outer courts into the holy place and he's standing there at the menorah. It's that Jesus has stepped out of the holy of holies to meet man and through the Spirit is communicating the gospel to these churches. Through the Spirit is trying to draw these churches to himself. Through the Spirit and this flame is telling people, I am the Alpha and the Omega. I am everything that you need. And that's what John's conveying. He says, it's, it's just me, John. I mean, I mean, I, John, I'm your brother and I'm your partner in trial, in tribulation. I'm not here because I'm super Christian. I'm here because I said, praise God. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but by him. I am here for the testimony of God Almighty. And I'm here because of the testimony of Jesus Christ. I'm your brother. I'm no different than you guys. And this is what God has entrusted me to give to you. Questions, thoughts, comments, snarks, conundrums, complaints. Anybody got anything? Come on. You got to have something. We don't have stuff this heavy without thoughts and Sometimes you got to marinate on it. I hear you. What, what you got, Alex? So in Zechariah 12, that second part, like 10 through 14. 14. So is that talking about the second coming? 10 through 14 with Zechariah? Yes, short answer. Yeah, this is talking about the second coming. Uh, what Zechariah is looking at, Zechariah is actually looking to what, what we call the day of the Lord. He's looking to final coming. That's what Zechariah sees. The Jews, they saw, remember we talked about the two mountains. They don't necessarily see the first coming. They see the second coming. But even with the second coming, they don't see all that's given because the New Testament really elaborates on a lot of it. We've got the tribulation that John talks about, seven years of it. Daniel knows there's a, a last week of years that has to occur, but... What it is, has no idea. But John gives us the week of years. And so Zechariah is talking about God coming, and there's that consummate battle, that, that last battle. And in fact, when Andy read it, she was talking about the uh, Hadradid uh, Rimon. These are actually two words. You've got Hadad and you've got Ramon, who are two Syrian deities. But where, what plane were they at? They're on the plain of Megiddo, which is Har Megiddo, which is where we get the word what? Armageddon. Armageddon, which is the what? 
the great and final battle. So you see Zechariah is looking to that. That's what he sees is he's seeing that final battle and he's seeing God stand up in Jerusalem. Now we know that there's a thousand and seven years prior to that great final battle. But Zechariah is looking to God just destroying all evil and all sin. And so second coming, not necessarily, the, let's, let's call it final coming. Yeah, yeah, that, that battle is it. That's, that's when God banishes everybody and Jesus comes riding back with his people and he slays, not with, not with mace or with bow and arrow, but the sword that proceeds from his lip. He speaks yeah. victory into creation and sin is wiped out at that point. Anything else? Questions, thoughts, comments? Great question, though. Uh, a vision of the church, not necessarily, the, the menorah is going to be the churches, and when we get into the chapter 2 and chapter 3, we're going to look at each church individually, and then we'll look at it dispensationally with the church ages, and look at it that way. But what John's showing us is she, he's showing us a high priest who has not just resided himself to the Jew. He's resided himself because where we see things in numbers of seven, that's where we see the church. When we see things in numbers of 12, what do we see? We see the Jew. We'll see 12 tribes. We'll see these things in numbers of 12, 144,000, 12,000 from every tribe. And even that has a Gentile contingent in it because we don't see Dan, but we see Ephri or Naphtali, but Naphtali's a Gentile tribe. It's not a Jewish tribe. So what we see is we see Christ dealing with the church and Christ approaching the church, but what's he doing with the church? Where is, where is this? It's in the holy place, which is where the priests go. So we've got Jesus talking to his people in the holy place. And so he's, he's dealing with the church, but he's dealing with more or less everybody at that point because you've got to remember the early church is mostly what? They're mostly Jewish. There, there's a lot of Gentiles, don't get me wrong, but the, by far and away, the vast majority of the church is Jewish. And so the, that's why we see so much temple picturism here because the Jews are going to pick up on it. Gentiles, we can read it. You know what? The candlestick is, that's, that's our church. The light is the pastor, and if the pastor's not doing his job, God's going to take it out, and we can, and, and we, and we can garner from that. But when we sit here and we begin to break apart what John's actually saying, the pictures that he puts forth, this is where the rubber really meets the road with Revelation. Um, I have thoroughly enjoyed studying this so that I could teach it. Um, I'm not a prophecy guy by any stretch of the imagination. But to see John's writings, to sit and absorb. Uh, if y'all got a minute, I want to read something that I read in my personal reading this, this week. Uh, let me see if I can find it. This is from John Flavel. He's a Puritan writer. Let's see. Here we go. Christ fulfills his prophetic office by revelation and illumination, his priestly office by oblation and intercession, and his kingly office by subjugation and governance. 
Salvation, says Flavel, is revealed by Christ as a prophet and procured by him as a priest, applied by him as a king. In vain it is revealed, if not purchased. In vain revealed and purchased, if not applied. Again, he remarks what Christ revealed as a prophet, he purchased as a priest, and what he revealed and purchased as a prophet and priest, he applies as a king. Christ discharges his mediatorship as God-man in these three offices in order to secure the blessings that he lavishes on all those who are united with him by the Holy Spirit. If Jesus performs the function of priest and king, but not prophet, it's in vain. If he performs the office of prophet and priest, but not king, it's in vain. He's got to have all three for it to not be in vain. And I was reading that this week, and I was just like, talk about Jerusalem being a weighty stone. That was a weighty stone. But think, think on the Alpha and Omega part this week going into next week. Uh, next week, I would love for us to have just a few minutes of testimony time. You have one or two words. No Sunday night church next week. Never mind. You get two weeks. You get two weeks for an assignment. That's fine. Uh, no, next... No, we are a vacation church. When there's a vacation, our church goes away. I swear this is the travelingest church. Well, we're going out to Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. We got it covered. That's where we're going. Well, now we're going on tourist trips, but we're going. I'm just picking. Anything else before we close out? I know I've gone over, and I apologize. The mom's name is Alicia Jones. She wanted as simple a last name as she could possibly get after having, what was it, a Korean? <laughs> or a Thai last name. So. But their little girl has been diagnosed with epilepsy. Uh, you know, I'm thankful at least they know what's causing the seizures, and so now they can formulate a plan to attack it and help remediate it. But anything else? Going once. Going twice. All right, well, somebody close us out and we'll be dismissed for two whole weeks. <laughs>